Hi, I'm Liana Downey, founder of Common Ground on Climate, and I think we can be having better conversations about Australia's future, conversations that bring us together to protect what we have. On this podcast, we're talking to a wide range of people to understand more about where we are, how we got here, and we're on the hunt for one big idea to safeguard Australia's environmental and economic future that we can all get behind. So join us and let's build common ground on climate together. Welcome, Will Grant, to Common Ground on Climate. It's a pleasure to have you with us here today. Thank you for having me. So you are a senior lecturer in science communication at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science at the ANU. It is fantastic to have you with us here today to talk about science and communication. Thank you. No, no trouble at all. You know, what's your vision for Australia? If you could wave a magic wand and in 20 years Australia would look and feel like what? Cooler, kinder, more fun, healthier. Yeah, they're the ones I want. Healthier, more fun, kinder and cooler. Look, what I want for Australia is it's a place where people think more in terms of their communities and then see value in their communities when they have a healthier lifestyle, living locally, riding their bikes around more, having more fun. There are great ways that we can solve some of the big crises that we're facing, not only climate change, but some of the other big health problems that we're facing. If we live nicer lives, but somehow we've got ourselves into the rat race really badly and it's making us unhealthy. So there's my vision. So a sense that it can be better for everybody at the other end of it. Better in so many ways. I think it's a danger that we think let's solve climate change and we should definitely. I'm a, I'm a huge advocate for solving climate change, but the best pathway to solving climate change actually goes via making our world so much better in so many other ways, including making us all happier and healthier. Can we talk a, a little bit about the healthier question? Because I think it's mm. a really interesting one and it's something that I don't think we talk about enough. When we talk about taking pollution down in ways that will help reduce the risk of climate change, there are a lot of benefits from improving pollution for everybody. Totally. We know that, for example, coal-fired power stations cause enormous numbers of cancers. You know, the people that live around coal-fired power stations, yes, they might appreciate them for the work that they provide and the income that they provide for their communities, but they make people less healthy. It, it's in the zone of smoking a number of cigarettes per day, just living near a coal-fired power station. If you don't have those in the community anymore, then you have healthier communities. But I think there's a broader benefit as well, where we start thinking, okay, our 20th century lifestyle, where we used energy to make ourselves as comfortable and as easy as possible. It's not good for us. We know that we're better off if we're more active, if we walk more, if we grow our own food, if we can do that. There's a whole range of ways where the climate solution actually makes us healthier as well. So I think the, the, the clearest one for me is redesigning our cities so that we don't have to travel as far or so that we can use active transport to get around, which is healthier for us and a lot more fun than sitting in, uh, sitting stuck in a car inhaling exhaust fumes. Great. You're a senior lecturer in science communication at the ANU. Tell us a little bit more about what that involves. The goal of our centre is really to understand the relationship between science and the rest of the world. So we attempt to understand where science is taken up connects well, engages with the audiences and everything happens nicely. But we also attempt to understand those places, times, situations, topics where there isn't good engagement. Either scientists come up with advice such as climate change 
and policymakers don't follow those dictates or when the rest of the community might have things that they want from science and scientists don't necessarily do that. So as we can understand more about the tensions and flaws in that relationship, our second goal is to use that research to go out and do something about it. You know, we go and we train people to be scientists who can communicate or science communicators, or we go around the country helping as much as we can so that when scientists are planning their work, they're also thinking about how they'll talk to other people about it, how they'll engage, how they'll listen to other people about what they want. How did you find your way to that work? By accident? No, well, I'm a political sociologist by training, but the work that I did originally was looking at the development of modern science and what that did for politics. And it turns out, yes, it was a huge thing a couple of hundred years ago, the period that I studied in my PhD, but it was always ongoing. Science is deeply enmeshed, not only with politics, but also with how people understand the world and what they want from the world. There's a lot that we need to understand about how the developments of new knowledge, new science, all of that kind of stuff integrates with the rest of the world. I found it fascinating. And then after I finished my PhD, discovered there was actually a job in it. Right. You talked about the question of where the science has been well communicated and where it hasn't. What's your perspective on how well scientists have done in communicating about climate change? Look, it's a tough one. There has been um, amazing work to get it so deeply embedded into a large number of people's political thinking, where we suddenly realise that all those things that we thought were externalities, things that we could just pump out into the atmosphere are actually a huge problem. And that's been big, significant work. I think the failing of our science communication in the climate change front has been not realizing the fight that we're in. And I think that's probably a failing of our political leaders, failing of some of our scientists. But for a long time, we had hopes that just putting out the idea that, hang on, we're going to cook the planet if we keep digging up fossil carbon and spewing it into the atmosphere. We thought that saying that and giving details was enough to get people to say, okay, we better change. Turns out for a variety of reasons, one, our own comfort and our own uh, path inertia, and two, capitalism doesn't like to change. It turned out that it's really hard to actually get people to, to make those changes. So part of me says, yes, it's a failure of communication in not realizing that, but it's also recognizing this is perhaps one of the hardest things we've ever asked society to do. Do you think that's also because often when you hear climate change discussed, the word complex is stuck next to it? So it's complicated because it's hard to touch and see. It's complicated because you're talking about predictions in the future. It's complicated because weather systems and climate systems have a whole lot of variables. Do you think that's part of the challenge? All of those things are true and they do make the actual science of climate change really truly complex. Yes, it's true. Atmospheric physics is a long way from linear. We have a, a decent understanding, but it's really complicated and really hard. Other way around though, when I think about it, I think people saying it's complex is often a cop-out. It's a cop-out to say, oh, it's really tough when we know 100% exactly what it is and it's really quite simple the great volume of why the climate is changing is that we're digging buried stuff out of the ground and putting it into the atmosphere and that stuff is like a blanket around the earth gradually making us warmer that's what we're doing we're digging stuff out of the ground putting it in the atmosphere over and over again that's the essence of climate change 
that's not hard to think about. And if we think, okay, we keep doing it, the world will get hotter like a blanket, then that's what's going to happen. And to be honest, we can say, oh, there's huge complexities in, in this trajectory here. Will we reach four degrees or five degrees or six degrees within 100 or 200 or 300 years? It doesn't matter, really. These are all horrible scenarios. And yes, it's important that scientists focus on those details. But I think really the, the key proposition here is we are heading right for a cliff. What do we need to do? Stop putting more carbon in the atmosphere. Perhaps get some of it out of the atmosphere. And one of our other guests was reflecting on the fact that maybe until recently scientists hadn't really seen either their role or their right actually to be directly communicating with the public on these issues so she talked about the fact that historically many scientists have considered it almost crass to be out there talking to the press about your research their job is to be measured, be objective, look at the facts, see what the facts tell you, see if you can repeat the research, see if it tells you the same thing. And once you've drawn a conclusion and your peers have all looked at it and said, yes, we think that holds up, then your job is done. You've done your research, you step back and somebody else can pick it up and run with it. What's your sense working in this science communication space about how comfortable scientists feel about that expectation, that role of talking to the public or the press about their work? Yeah, I think it's changed a lot. That mindset of we do the science and our job is to check the details and make it as precise and accurate as we possibly can. That's not gone away. But the mentality of the 20th century that says, and that's all our job is, we just do the detail work and someone else can pick it up. I think we've realized over the last 30 or 40 years that the whole someone else can pick it up, the big failing in the conveyor belt of knowledge. You look at any university, the library and there is row upon row upon row of books that were never read you used to have this thing where it would show the last person to check it out and you'd see these gaps last borrowed 1983 and <laughs> there's heaps of knowledge that is out there that just sits there and is dead and i think we in the scientific world have recognized hang on we can't just say i've done my bit and then i walk away because yes publication in a peer-reviewed journal is part of the step, but we know more and more. We have to carry it forward to other stakeholders in the knowledge landscape who can then do more with it. Maybe it's to policymakers, maybe it's to journalists, maybe it's to other researchers, other scientists. Part of the job is saying, hey, I think this is important and valuable. I think maybe you would benefit from this as well. Here you go, here you go. But the whole dumping it on the ground and then walking away and saying, I've done my job. Yeah, well, that's that research will never get taken up. The advantage we've got here is that scientists now know, oh, yes, maybe we thought that's crass, but it means my particular work will never get taken up. And so they're self-interested and they're thinking, all right, I've got to do work to make sure other people read my work. There's a long history of this, isn't there? I mean, even though probably the average person has only become more aware of the concepts of climate over the last 10 or 20 years, this research has been going on since the 1850s, I think. Yeah, well, like we can definitely, you can do the climate history. Svantarhenius, you know, brought it all together to give us the modern understanding of climate change at the end of the 19th century. But that's drawing on, there's a famous story of, her last name is Foote. I can't remember her first name right now. She did great work looking at the role of carbon in the atmosphere, but her work was marginalized and not taken up. But there's people like Tyndall that was more famous for the same sort of work, looking at the role of carbon in the atmosphere. Other people that looked at the history of climate, 
a lot of threads were pulled together throughout the the 18th and 19th centuries to get this idea hang on okay there's carbon in the atmosphere we're putting out carbon and maybe that's warming the planet the scientists have had a knowledge of a warming planet at least the role of carbon in warming the planet for 130 or 40 years building on that they've certainly known that we have been warming the planet due to our industrial revolution for at least 60 or 70 years a long time before it was taken up in public consciousness now this is the job of science communication i think this is the job to say okay scientists did that great work but there was a huge gap between when it was taken up into either decision making or wider public consciousness and as you said if it's 20 or 30 years that most people have known about and i think that's the right timeline that's really slow and we've missed many moments where we could perhaps have seized the day spent the money in the right place and turned our society a lot more easily than it's going to be now one of the things i was reflecting on is the role of an organization that probably some people have heard of the ipcc the intergovernmental panel on climate change and so they are an interesting group and they come out with a report every few years and probably in people's mind that report is a short document that you could download and read and in fact the truth is that document is usually about 2,000 pages long and costs about $500 to purchase. It's very difficult to actually get your hands on a copy of that report. And I was reflecting on that because I was thinking, and I have seen one of those reports in a previous life. I worked for an organization that was doing a bunch of research on climate change. And as part of that, we made sure we had the copies of the latest reports. And they're fascinating because it is page after page of analysis and evidence coming to the same conclusion from all around the world, from hundreds of different scientists in different fields. But I was thinking about the question of how many people in government, even in senior levels of corporations, have probably ever actually seen any of those reports. And the longer a report, the less likely it is for somebody to read, the more expensive a document, the harder it is to get. Yeah. Should everyone read these reports? These reports, uh, they're long and boring. I don't think we want to operate in a world where everyone needs to understand climate change. I think those reports serve a really important point. They are a great summary of evidence from leading science on climate change brought together and then that becomes a useful landmark document for the range of departments of environment and other things like that around the world but that's not a public facing document that's not the thing that will either work well for the rest of us or convince us to ride our bike more or redesign our city or turn off our coal-fired power stations the report serves a useful purpose the point then is to distill that boil that down into the key statements of what we need to do get it taken up by Department of Environment or your local transport or wherever it is, they, they need to find the bit that is relevant to them. This is my second point. Whilst I'm a, a science communicator and I do climate communication, I really don't think in a hundred years time, our goal should be everyone out there understanding climate change. I really don't. The only people I want to understand climate change are atmospheric physicists and maybe some historians of science. They look back on it and go, yeah, that was awesome. We solved that huge problem. I think what we want is society changing. And if people will change either their behaviors or change government in ways that will you know, help them all to change behaviors, then that's more important than understanding the science. There's great examples where some of the leading suburbs in Australia were also some of the leading places where we had climate change deniers. Now, I'm not saying they're the same people, but they might well be because it doesn't matter if people put solar panels on their roof for a different reason 
maybe it lowers the price of their power bills, which it does, then that's a good outcome. If they are doing it for the planet, that's great. If they do it for another reason, that's still great. So I don't work on an idea where everyone has to understand the science of climate change in order to do the right things. You talked a little bit about individual action, and it seems to me that the emphasis on the need for individuals to change their behaviour is something that seems to be emphasised more in Australia than in other countries. In other countries, there seems to be, like the UK, for example, much more of a discussion about this as a system level issue and about how do we make it easy for people to change their behaviour rather than really putting the onus back on individuals. What's your sense about how we've communicated about that in Australia? Is this something that you and I need to fix and it's totally resting on our shoulders or is this something that requires the government to act? Look, this is a really fascinating question because absolutely it requires government to change systemic things. So that is the natural path for us all to go. How we get there is a tough one. We've got a bias in Australia right now where we have individualized all of these things. We have said that this is about individual decision-making and it is right now in Australia. That's one of the few ways that we can have an impact on the climate system. We can ride to work. We can put solar panels on our roofs. I think absolutely what we do need is societal changes that make all of these things much easier and then they just happen. The question I have is, does that mean we have to wait until until change of government or government understands to put more into these systemic changes? Or do we individuals start doing these changes and then it becomes easier for government to embrace them? There's a famous quote from Franklin Roosevelt. I'm going to get the gist of the quote, but not the words of the quote, but I want to do this action, but you have to make me do this. And I think there is something there that individual action is not enough to solve climate change, but potentially individual action is a way to force or make it easier for governments to do the things that support it. So one of the key ones that I think a lot about is active transport. And we know that every additional cyclist on the road makes other people more likely to work or cycle to their local shops or anything like that. They just There's a safety in numbers and a sort of norming effect that goes on. As one person rides, more people start to ride, and then government will respond to that and put in better infrastructure. And then there's a virtuous circle of more and more people riding. So long as we actually capture that virtuous cycle where we then support more active transport, where government comes around and does that, then I feel there is some role of individual action. So me riding to work, what is that? It's barely, it's the fraction of a fraction of impact on climate change. It's a slight positive, but I do believe there is something to be said for me riding to work, encourages my colleagues at work to ride just that little bit more, encourages my kids, encourages the people around me just that little bit more. Then hopefully that will encourage government to support active transport and then broadly more solutions to climate change. That makes a lot of sense. And I'm interested to also, yes, I hear what you're saying, that we don't need every person in the world to deeply understand climate change, but there are a number of myths about climate change. What are some of the biggest ones that you've heard? Look, there's there's a bunch of myths. 
and there's myths about the causes and myths if it's happening and then myths about our solutions I'll, I'll come to some of the big ones and then why they're occurring but look some of the the, the biggest ones are that this is natural variation that that the climate has always changed and what we're seeing now is just some sort of natural variation of course yes the climate has changed we know looking through the geological record that there were periods where australia was colder hotter absolutely the climate has changed over lots of different times um, in history but what we're experiencing now is far faster than just about any other form of climate change that we have ever seen the only the only thing that comes close and is obviously much worse is you know when the meteorites killed the dinosaurs there is no other time when the, the earth has changed its climate as rapidly as we are changing it now yes it might feel like hang on the climate's pretty much the same as it was last week and last year to us and the, at the personal level we might not really experience those differences but when we look at the data we're seeing that over the even over the decadal scale we're seeing rapid rapid increases in temperature that's going to have huge consequences for our planet why these myths occur well it's simple people don't want to change people like a status quo they like either the way that their life is organized or they like the the money that this system affords them and so if you can find a reason to say, oh, we don't have to change because this is just natural variation. We can't be causing it. Therefore, um, how could we possibly stop it? Then you don't have to change. So that's why people spread these myths to get out of doing anything. Yeah, that's interesting. I always think about behavior as very tied to our incentives as humans. Mm -hmm. And in my career, I've sat on the corporate side as well as the government, as well as nonprofit side. And one of the kind of fundamental structures around how our society works, how the corporation model works, is that corporations have to put shareholder interests above their individual interests. And that works quite well when you can assume that government is acting in the interests of citizens and companies are acting in the interests of shareholders because they're not always the same people. So you think about the incentive, for example, for a tobacco company or a company that's making uh, Teflon or asbestos, mm -hmm. their, as you said, their interest is to protect their shareholders, which in the short term can look like making sure that they continue to produce their product. And if somebody's raising concerns about this product maybe being unhealthy or bad for the environment, they might come in and say, well, hang on, you know, can we be sure? It, it might be in their interest to raise questions. I've talked about tobacco and asbestos, where there was a gap between when the flag was raised by scientists about health concerns, and there were a lot of questions raised by companies in the meantime that kind of muddied the waters before finally government said, actually, we're convinced we think these things are bad for people and bad for the environment, and we're going to act to protect them. Or the companies made those changes themselves. Do you think there's a bit of that potentially going on here as well? Oh yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. We know evidence that for example, Peabody coal in, in America or Exxon has done a lot of work to deny that the climate is changing, very much paralleling the work that uh, the tobacco companies did in the fifties, sixties and seventies to deny the link between uh, smoking and cancer. I think it is legitimate. It is legitimate for anyone who suddenly sees new information that says, hey, you're causing a problem to say, oh, let's just check. Let's just check. 
I think that's legitimate. But we do have to say at some point we need to stop and we need the company needs to change or government needs to force the company to change. I think this is a really interesting question because one part of me says there are companies that cannibalize their own products that realize long-term shareholder value is not always about continually pumping out the same product, but inventing new products for customers uh, that might be better. So, you know, classic example here is, is Apple made a mozza over the iPod, but then they killed it. No other company killed the iPod other than Apple. It was their own product, but they were doing well out of it. And yeah, there would have been competitors and that kind of thing, but they, they decided, no, let's bring out new products that cannibalize, destroy our own products and, and take us further. It's probably not the same when your product is coal or Teflon or tobacco. I, I, I get that it's kind of hard to pivot out of there, but I think there is somewhere where we can say, okay, you made a lot of money out of tobacco. Now, can we assist you to change? And I think that there is a legitimate role for government here to assist certainly the coal mining workers and the coal mining companies to shift in some way to something that's renewable. And look, there are still assets in the coal production world that can be used. So the classic one is we can, there are power stations be re, being reconfigured, you know, that they, they have all of the power line infrastructure. So why not chuck a solar farm on there? It's not the same thing. And I get that they aren't very easy, uh, very able to pivot. If what you've got is a giant hole in the ground that digs out rocks, it's really hard to pivot from that to something else. That is the job of government to say, look, at some point, we need to help you shift to a better world. Now, I know that there are many in the environmental advocacy space that would say, sure, how long should we give you? You know, if you saw the writing on the wall in 1950 and you kept spewing out more more coal for another 50 years or another 70 years, what point should we say, you don't get to do that anymore? So there are some who say, no, we should just shut the door and, and move on. But yeah, we need to pivot. And I, my belief is, whilst many would be squeamish about this, I would help everyone we can to pivot as quickly as we can. And it's interesting because you also talked about the workers in those industries. I think there's an interesting question. Do the environment and the economy have to sit in opposition to one another? If you think about comparable examples, maybe leaded fuel in cars, there were a whole set of industries reliant on producing leaded fuel, but a transition to unleaded fuels, which was a massive health improvement for everybody mm -hmm. in the world it's not the case that that lined up with huge economic drop-offs and so we've got examples as to ways in which with technological developments and good planning we can make sure that people are looked after still have jobs but in a differently configured economy yeah absolutely we can i really believe we we should those workers undergoing difficult transitions should be supported by government but i believe that about every worker i believe that we have strong safe social safety nets then we're better able to change and that might mean supporting coal miners transitioning or the towns around them transitioning to other things or just everyone who loses their job yeah it's really interesting you talked yeah. also about the difficulty that people and countries have in changing and I think that's true, right? We, we all, very few of us like change. And yet it's thrust upon us, isn't it? <laughs> it? It is. This is what builds character. Sometimes you've got to change. I believe that the makeup of the Australian economy is more resistant to change than some other countries. I don't know why, but we tend to have a few giant corporates and then, you know, small business down, down the local shops. 
Other countries have a range of uh, businesses and are more agile. We don't have the most agile or innovative economy in the world. We're a long way from that, actually. I think finding ways that our companies can pivot and do new things would be great. You know, there's Ross Garno's book on superpower. We have the resources here to absolutely be a renewable energy superpower. But right now we've got companies that are too timid and we've got a government that isn't pushing for that. So I don't know, maybe all of us have a a bias towards status quo and we don't like change. I think it's perhaps worse in Australia. Our companies have a bias towards status quo as well. You've talked about that idea of Australia becoming a renewable superpower. We're interested in this question of one big idea that Australians, regardless of what you believe about climate change, regardless of where you sit politically, could get behind that will actually protect Australia's environment, but it'll also safeguard the economy. Is that a big idea that you would be putting forward? Absolutely. It wouldn't be my only big idea, but absolutely. I think that there are certainly companies that are starting to see that we have renewable resources that so many other countries, particularly countries in our near region, just cannot even dream of. We can generate renewable energy and then pipe that or pump that via a storage technology, whether it's hydrogen or whether it's the electricity cable that that Sun Cable is looking to build up into Singapore. Whatever we're doing, we can send renewable energy up into our region. And I think this is a huge thing. There is eminent chance for Australia to be something like the Saudi Arabia of renewable energy, but we don't necessarily have people that are grabbing that and saying, this is what we need to do. That's one big idea, and I absolutely believe we should, but I think there are other things that we should be doing at the same time, much more at the local scale. And certainly some cities around the world and around Australia are doing that. And I think those are where you also get really great benefits to people's lives and lifestyles and you get an innovative economy into the future. So what would be some of those examples that you would be saying, hey, this is something that every city should be getting behind? I was thinking about this a while ago, that a lot of people talk about, oh, we need new technologies to solve climate change. No, we don't. We really don't. We, we have great examples of the technology, but some of the technologies are ages old. All we need to do to solve climate change is more renewable power and solar is getting cheaper and cheaper. It is the cheapest form of new power and it is a cheaper form even over existing power in many situations. So we just need to roll out solar panels. The other things that we need to do at the local scale, we need to design our cities around active transport and we need to live a little bit more densely and get on our bikes, ride around a lot more and then then eat more veggies. That's not a big idea, but just move to a, a more environmentally friendly diet make meat special rather than make meat every day. I think that's something that we can do. And that doesn't require new technology. Like I I know that there are people that are like, oh, we'll we'll invent plant-based meat and lab-grown meat. Sure, there might be people who approach vegetarianism from an ethical stance that says, okay, that would would allow them. I'm not against that. All I think is that the technologies to lower our impact on the environment are right there right now. We as individuals can do them. Government can help. Great. Thank you so much for your time today. Now, if people want to reach you, they can listen to one of your podcasts. Where else can they find you? Look, if you want to, for scholarly reasons, at the ANU website. So the Centre for Public Awareness of Science, or cpas.anu.edu.au, is probably a good way to find the scholarly version of me. But I tweet over at Willow's app if you can be bothered following on Twitter. Great. And those details will be in the show notes and on the website as well. It's been great to have you on the show. Thank you for your insights and words to wisdom. No worries at all. Thanks for helping us build common ground on climate. 
If you have a big idea all Australians can get behind, know someone we should talk to or want to join a respectful and pragmatic conversation about our future, please check out our website, commonground on climate.org.